Acts 18. I'll read a verse and then kind of introduce the chapter. Verse one says this, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Athens and Corinth are very different cities. It would be like Grants Pass and Ashland. They're different, right? Ashland has NPR, the Jefferson Exchange. Grants Pass has Cajo and Bargain Roundup. One is a free exchange of ideas. The other is a free exchange of our junk. That's just different, right? The roads of Grants Pass are full of jacked up trucks with bumper stickers that say, Earth first, we'll log the other planets later. Gun racks. In Ashland, they're full of Subarus with goddess stickers and two golden retrievers in back. It's different. That's kind of like Athens and Corinth. Athens is the intellectual philosophical capital of the ancient world. Socrates, Plato, Plato, Aristotle come out of that. It's the thinking man's place. They'd have book clubs and they'd have universities and they'd have discussions and it was feelings and that kind of stuff would happen inside of the city of Athens. Corinth, very different, a port city. In fact, it was on this little isthmus that uh, it was very dangerous to go around this peninsula So they had this road that they would actually unload the ships and drag them across. And you had to pay to have that done. It was kind of like a union job. If you weren't a union member, you couldn't do it. So the sailors would have to wait sometimes for two or three days. Now, what do you think a sailor would do waiting for two or three days? Is he gonna go to a book club? What's the latest book you're reading? No, they party. So it just became this port city of kind of just partying. It's, it's, you know, Cabo at spring break or something. Just gritty, working class, immoral city. They had a temple there. Their club was this temple to Aphrodite's. And every day, a thousand vestal virgins would be released into the city. And there were anything but virgins. So that's what happens in this city, just a completely different kind of community. But what we saw In chapter 17, as Paul goes to the intellectual, philosophical capital of the world, goes there and he fails, leaves, doesn't end up birthing a church there. Very few people believe it's really a It's the biggest failure that you see recorded in the book of Acts for Paul. So what's going to happen in Corinth? And where, if you thought about it, where would you think Paul would fit better? in a gritty, blue-collar, immoral city or a philosophical, intellectual university city? Which one would you think he would fit in? It's kind of interesting. Let's take a look and see what happens. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, he's the Caesar at the time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked 
for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Here's the first thing you see. Very different than Athens. In Athens, if you remember, Paul spent a lot of time by himself. Timothy hadn't showed up yet. And he's just by himself for a long time there. The very first thing you see when Paul goes to Corinth is he makes some friends, Priscilla and Aquila, and they become besties. There's a lot of selfies that Paul takes with the Priscilla and Aquila throughout the Bible. He's with them, you know, they, there's a lot of interaction. These guys become his really good friends. And he meets them because they do the same job. And the word tent making, no one's sure what it means. It's kind of one of those words that uh, fell out of use and now it's like, what, is it leather work or is it tent making? It was something like that. It was hard work. And he meets these two hard workers and they kind of go into business together. And the reason why Paul knew how to make tents or work leather was because in the ancient world, a dad was told this, a Jewish dad, teach your son theology and teach him a trade. Because if you don't teach your son a trade, you train him to steal. I think that's really good. So Paul would have been taught theology by his dad, but then he would have also been taught a job. Here's how you work. Here's how you make money. Because theology is rarely a way to make a millionaire out of you. Now go into construction if you wanna make millions. Go into theology for other reasons. So Paul has this skill, links up with these two, and they probably had left Rome and came to Corinth because here's what happened in history. We have this recorded. Claudius in 49 AD made a couple of laws really quick. The first was he threatened all tomb robbers with capital punishment. If you rob a tomb of a body, we'll kill you. And then secondly, he said, everyone that's a Jew needs to get out of this city now. Now in AD 49, Christianity was still considered by Rome to be a sect of Judaism. And the reason why he says everybody needs to get out of Rome was because of a disturbance caused by a, a person by the name of Crestus, which is super close to Christos. So if you put all the pieces together, it looks like this. Within 15 years of the gospel, being launched into the world. It had gone to Rome and so destabilized Rome, the slave system, the, the order of it, where you have low caste people and high caste people, where you have a disturbance against the temple system and gladiators that the Caesar himself has to say, we can't do this. I don't know what to do here. Get them out of here. And what we're gonna see, if you know church history, is there's going to be 10 waves of Caesars that attack Christianity because of how destabilizing it was to their system. And eventually, by AD 323, it, it wins, Christianity wins. So you see, this is the first crack, if you would. Gets the attention of Caesar. So Paul now goes there, starts a business with these guys. He's got friends. Much better way to go to a city. I've got friends. And then he starts, verse four, to preach. And it says he reasoned and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Christianity, conversion, is not an emotional response to something. 
It is an intellectual decision. And the intellectual decision is this. I believe Jesus is God and he saved me from my sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's you believe that is true. See, I'm not a Christian because it's comfortable or easy or cool or fun or whatever. I am a Christian because it's true. It is that decision that will enable you to endure when it's not comfortable, when it's not your best life now, when it's not easy, when people mock you. If you do it for an emotional reason, then emotions will take you down at some point and they won't be there anymore. Paul intellectually wants to persuade them. That's how you endure. It's true. Maybe an illustration of this that kind of gets the picture is this guy named historian Gibbon wrote uh, The Fall and Decline of Rome, of the Roman Empire, great book. And in it, he talks about the chinks in the armor that begin to break up this empire that was so dominant for 600 years. And what happened was this, the soldiers begin to say this on the outposts of the kingdom. They started saying, the armor you make us wear all the time is uncomfortable. It's heavy, it's hot, it's sweaty. Do we have to wear it anymore? And so the captains and the centurions started to be like, yeah, you know what, don't wear it, no one's attacking us. So they stopped wearing their armor. And then it was, you know, the drills that we do all the time where we go and we fight each other, it just takes a lot of time. I'd rather be at the club doing something else. And so they quit doing their exercises and that kind of stuff. And in the middle of the fifth century, the Germanic tribes came down, you know the story, and they just ravaged, they went right through the center of Rome because no one was prepared. It's too late when the tribes were at the door to put your armor on and get in shape. They forgot the truth that their job was a soldier and soldiers need to train and they need to be in their equipment in order to defend the nation. And when they forgot that simple truth, then the rest was history. It might be like this as well. So when I first started fishing in the ocean in my little Tahiti, uh, super fun. If you haven't done it, do it. But don't use, it, use a Tahiti, use a kayak. They don't get holes in them. But for the first like three years, I just used a Tahiti. And uh, it was a family camp. It was a Friday. I got there early. I wanted to go get some fish and come back real quick. So I, I had lugged all my stuff down to the beach and I was putting it all in. You've got to have a lot of stuff and teeters aren't that big. So I'm putting in this, this box in the center. I learned the very first fishing trip. You have to have a box to put the fish in because they have these spikes on them. And when you put them in your, yeah, when you put them in your Tahiti, they don't just stay still. They're not like, hey, okay, kill me, please. They, they bounce around and I put like 14 holes like that in my Tahiti and I came right back in. So I learned, put a box in there. So that was the first lesson. So I had my box in there, had my tackle in there, had my seat in there. You have your paddle, you have your, your fishing rod. And so I'm ready to go and I literally could not find somewhere to put my life vest. I'm like, this went through my mind, really did. I don't really need that thing. You know, I'm not going out that far. I could always swim in. I'll just ditch everything and swim in. But then reason caught me. I'm gonna take it. And it was cumbersome and I couldn't figure out to put it and I couldn't really put it on because you can't, it was a kind of a cheesy one so I couldn't fish with it on. So I just kind of sat on it and kind of, it was, it was awkward. But the night before I had bought a patch kit from Walmart and patched up my whole, made it all 
seaworthy, right? So I'm out and I'm fishing away and all of a sudden I see in the water something floating and guess what it was? A Walmart patch. I'm like, oh no, and I see bubbles coming out. At that moment, I was super happy that I had brought my life jacket. See, the truth is, if you got in the ocean, take a life jacket. That's the truth. If you forget that, you're gonna perish. There are truths in life that no matter what the conditions hit, they will carry you through. One of the truths is this. Jesus is God in the flesh. He came, lived, died, buried, resurrected, saved us from our sin, and he's returning for us. And if you let that truth go deep into your heart, you can endure any cumbersome thing, any embarrassment, any unease, any discomfort, because you know the king's coming back for me and I'm one of his kids. That's what Paul is telling these people. He reasons and persuaded intellectually. Very important. So he begins with that. Very different than Athens. So he's got friends. He's reasoning and persuading concerning Jesus. Then verse five says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied. Every other translation I read says, Paul gave himself to, does anyone else have a different word there? Compelled, like that. What's the other one? Pressed. Yeah, I think the, the ESV is wrong here. But constrained? That's a good one. So I'm gonna choose one of those better. So Paul was pressed, he's constrained. All of a sudden something changes with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent for now I will go on to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I love this. So he's going, he's persuading, he's intellectual, but then Verse five, it's like Paul grabs fifth gear. He gets pressed now. He gets motivated, constrained. Now, what was the catalyst that made him take that next gear? Silas and Timothy came. Who are Silas and Timothy? Really good friends. People that he has done ministry with for a long time. They show up and all of a sudden it's like energizes him. It could be they brought a gift of money. That's possible. But I think it's more than that. I think it's like this maybe. Do you know what situational shyness is? Like kids sometimes have it where in certain groups, man, they're like a firecracker and they're, they're a whole different person. But you take them out of that and you put them in a different situation and they're way different, right? Situational shyness. 
Um, like my daughter's had that. My oldest daughter, Carissa, we'd be like driving somewhere and she just would talk to me from the time we left our house to wherever we were going to school or to church, just like little girls can do. Just talk, 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 talk. And then we'd get somewhere, we'd be holding hands, walking in, and then someone would see her and be like, you are so cute, how old are you? (laughs) Does she talk? Yes, yes, she does. It's like the cartoon that I used to watch as a kid. Michi- did anyone remember this? Michigan J. Frog? Who knows that? Oh my goodness, Google it. Not now, later. <laughs> it's this homeless dude finds this frog and the frog is singing. Hello, my darling, hello, my... You know that one? Yeah. Okay, that's Michigan J. Frog, right? And he's just seeing dollar signs like, I'm gonna be a millionaire. And so he takes the frog into the Hollywood producer. He's like, look, watch this. Opens the box and what does the frog do? Ribbit, Right? And he does it over and over and over until the end scene is him in the rain, homeless again, with the, with the frog just singing and dancing away. I'm like, that's my kids. Like, when we're alone, it's like, ribbit. I think every single person, at some level, you know, depending on your personality, we all have situational shyness. So, Paul here, when his crew shows up, there's something that like engages him now. He's like, ah, oh, I've got. Timothy and Silas, my bros here, oh, I'm pressed now. Now I'm unleashed. Now I can go for it. Yeah, this is awesome, okay? I think that's what happens here. We're all supposed to have Timothys and Silases or Jennifers and Jennies or whatever. We're all supposed to have people that when we're around them, it's like they heat us up in our faith and they press us and constrain us to more. If you don't have that, search that out, find it. It's one of those key ingredients that keeps you and me enduring till the end. Even Paul needed those kinds of friends. So he gets emboldened by them. And nothing happens, well, something does happen, it's negative, they get riled up, They oppose him. They're about ready to probably go to blows with him. So while Paul is bold and he will reason and be intellectual, Paul also will not be rude. And there comes a point in Paul where he just says, okay, enough is enough. I tried to share with you. I've given you all the reasons I can, but enough is enough. And he says, your blood be on your heads. He's quoting now from Ezekiel, who actually says it twice, chapter three and chapter 30, where God tells Ezekiel, who's a reluctant prophet, by the way, if you know his story, when he's commissioned into the ministry, it says he sat for seven days silent, just, oh, really? I have to be a prophet? Oh my goodness, I know what happens to prophets. So he's a little reluctant, so God says this, listen to me. If you warn people like a watchman on the wall and they don't listen to you, and they end up being taken out. So if you're like a watchman and you see an army coming, you're like, hey, everybody get out of the city. And people are like, nah, I'm not listening to you. And that army comes in and destroys everybody. It's not the watchman's fault. Their blood be on their own heads. But if you don't tell them, if you don't tell them like I'm telling you you're going to, then their blood is on your head. So Paul's saying the same thing here. It might be like modernized that. It'd be like, if I sold you a car and I told you, dude, I think the motor's bad and the tranny's bad and the brakes are bad, you can have it for 200 bucks. 
and you go take it out on a road trip across the United States and it blows up on you in Missouri, don't blame me. Now, if I told you, man, it is a great vehicle, I would drive it anywhere in the world and I know it's not and it blows up in Missouri, man, that's on me. It's kind of like that. I've given you all the information I had, everything that I knew, and now you've decided to say no. And like for almost theatrics, he goes out in front of the synagogue and like shakes the dust off of his garments and like, listen, your blood on your head. And then he walks five feet away and opens the door and goes in there. It's like almost hilarious. Like, really? You're just right there now. I know, but it's okay. So why does Paul just go five feet away to the next door? Because he wanted them to now watch him. I've spoken to you in word, now watch my deeds. He wanted them, taking an analogy from Sunday, to smell the filet mignon from the believers next door and to be jealous. That's what he says in Romans 11. I want to, to compel them through jealousy. Look at what's happening over here. Stop eating your Big Mac. Come over here and eat it filet mignon. I felt a little bad on Sunday because <laughs> I kind of made fun of Big Macs. But <laughs> I, Charity and I had this lunch set with a couple from Texas that had been here, moved down there five years ago, came back to visit some family. So we had lunch with them. And right after service, I said, hey, where do you guys want to go? He said, well, I know where I'm not going. We're not going to get a Big Mac, are we? I'm like, oh, I'm not 100% against Big Macs. I'm 98%, not 100% though. <laughs> it's that. He's just wanting, I love you guys so much. Yeah, I'm done with talking to you. Now watch us. Watch and see what's happening over here next door all the time. We're supposed to preach in word and in deed. Because a lot of people, your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe your family, your friends, your life is the only Bible they're ever gonna read. That's it. Is it filet mignon? If you were to ask your neighbors or your friends to describe you in one word, what would the one word be? My hope is the one word people choose for me comes from Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. That's what I hope defines me, right? Jesus says, let your light so shine that men see your good words good works, and it brings glory to their heavenly father. That's what I want for my life. So I think that's why Paul just goes right next door. All right. And it works because Crispus and another guy named Sosthenes, who are the two top dudes in the synagogue, they end up becoming believers and joining with the faith. So it ends up working brilliantly, right? One final note on this little section. It says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, um, believed and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. A little ax nugget for you, theologically, that's important to me. Nowhere in the entire book of Acts do you see a non-baptized believer. There is no one that believes and just stays that way for a while and then gets baptized. Every single spot in the book of Acts, believe, and be baptized over and over. It's, it's very, 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 it's Luke telling us something. It's not like, well, it's every single time. Now, 1 Corinthians massages that a bit 
But the message of Acts is believe and be baptized. So on Sunday, um, this young lady came up to me after service and she was from out of town down south. Uh, and she'd come up and she has some friends here that she wanted to get them to a church. So she didn't know what church to go to. So somehow she heard about Edgewater and she ended up here. And she, you guys impressed her. She's like, there's something here. There is something here. I don't know what it is. God's spirit is here and it is awesome. I'm gonna tell my friends they've got to come back here every single day. This place is amazing. So you guys, something's working, word and deed. So she's like, but you guys baptized right here, right now? I said, yeah, because in the book of Acts, I just showed her, look, Acts chapter two, believe and be baptized. Acts chapter four, believe and be baptized. She's like, that is so cool. I love that. I said, there's no two-tier Christianity. It's either you are or you aren't. It's not like I'm a believer, but I'm not baptized yet. Oh, hmm. Well, you can sit up in the back row then. Front row is for baptized people. No, believe, be baptized. So she was like, oh, that's cool. So it's, it's starting to churn out here. But Sunday, we looked at, not this Sunday, two Sundays ago, uh, Paul being afraid. In the midst of this just kind of gritty sailor city, something happens inside of Paul that he is afraid. And we looked at what God does to help you and me deal with fear. Everybody's afraid, right? What do you call someone that says they're not afraid? A liar. That's it. Everyone has fear, even the apostle Paul. You can get that if you want. So verse 12, this is what Paul's afraid of because he knows this happens. But when Gallio was pro-council, pro-consul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. He's like, I've been waiting for this. Here it comes. And brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes. He's the new ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The reason why Paul was afraid, he's been expecting verse 12. So I wonder if this is happening, if there's a little PTSD to Paul. He's like, oh no, I know God made this promise, but this usually ends with me in the ER. Oh no. <laughs> and so verse 14, he's ready to stand up. He's ready to do it. But right when he's about to open his mouth, God jumps in. I wonder sometimes if you and I jump the gun when God wants to take care of it. We're so, we're so eager to jump in and defend ourselves that we don't let God actually defend us. If you wanna look up, just Google verses where God promises to defend his people. They just, they're all throughout the prophets. They're all throughout the Torah. They're all throughout the Psalms over and over again. Exodus 14, 14, I'll fight for you and you be quiet. 
It's one of my favorite ones. I'll fight for you and you just be quiet. You stand over there and watch me do this. It's perfect verse for Paul right here. Second Chronicles chapter 20, right? Stay, stand still, watch what I'm going to do. Watch me take out the, you just keep praising me, I'll take out these guys. So I wonder if Paul there in this moment, when he starts to hear what Gallio begins to say, if he's just like, oh, wow, Lord, thank you. One of his heart is going, neener, neener, neener. <laughs> yes. Oh, awesome. And what you see is they grabbed the person that was instigating the problem, the role of the synagogue, and he ends up on the wrong end. This could be judo theology, I think, right? It's like Esther and Haman. It's like Pharaoh and the babies. It's, you go throughout the Bible and over and over, you see this judo theology. Do you guys know what judo theology is? I'll explain it again. This is one of my favorites. So judo is a martial art where you use the momentum of your enemy against himself. So he comes running to attack you. She comes running to attack you, either one. They, they, a person an individual, comes running to attack you and they run at you and you just use their momentum and you throw them aside. What I see throughout scripture is God over and over taking the momentum of evil and turning it against the enemy. You see the life of Joseph. Oh, we're gonna get you, we're gonna get... What happens? Joseph goes up to the top tier in Egypt. Pharaoh uses the river Nile to try to drown the babies, but that very river, they throw in a certain baby, his name is Moses, he gets drawn out and he becomes the deliverer coming out of the very river that Pharaoh was trying to use to destroy the people. Those are not coincidences. It's over and over and over again. And that's why Joseph would say, what you meant for evil, God has turned for good. The two words there are ra and tov in the Hebrew. The ra that this world has against us. God is able to take that ra and turn it into Tove. And that's what happens right here for Paul. The rod that they had, oh, we're gonna get you. Nope, he's protected. And it turns against those that wanted evil for Paul. I think a good discipline for believers is to have a journal of judo theology. Relationships that you think, oh my goodness, how could that happen? Write it down. Disasters that seem to be coming into your life, Write them down. Failures in your own life, write them down. God, can you take what the enemy wanted to use for evil in these situations and can you turn it for good? And watch and see him do that. It's one of the most faith-building things you can do in life, that God is able to take the worst things that I can imagine and turn them around. It's his promise in Isaiah 61, which is a massively cool section of scripture. Jesus quotes it for himself. But in there it says, hey, for ashes, I'm gonna give you a beautiful headdress. For shame, I'm gonna give you double. For your no land, I'm gonna give you a massive inheritance. It's all judo theology. What seemed like it was taken from you and burned out, I'm gonna reverse that and turn it into something beautiful and brilliant if you'll let me. If you'll let me. It's like Job. Job says, I know I'm gonna be tried, but when I'm tried, I'm gonna come forth like gold. When you realize what you are in God's sight, that you're gold, you will not fear any fire. Because what does fire do to gold? It just purifies it, makes it more precious, makes it better. That's all fire does. It cannot burn up gold. 
So gold fears no fire. Paul's getting that right here. So here's what happens. This is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. He had a near-death experience. Oh no, I'm gonna get punked. No, praise God, I'm staying then. I'm not leaving. And set sail for Syria. With him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sentry, he had, his, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Paul was Jewish. He still did Jewish things. He went to feast days. He celebrated Passovers, Pentecost, vows, totally legitimate. The only thing Paul would be against is someone telling everybody else, you need to take this vow and you gotta be circumcised and you gotta do these things. That's when it's wrong. For someone else to say, you know what? My heart resonates with Jewish things. And I wanna be involved in them. Great, man, I've gone to a Passover. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Just brilliant, just awesome. Ah, because I wanted to. Not because I had to, not because I was trying to earn my own salvation, not because God liked me more because I went to a Passover. It's because I wanted to. So Paul wanted to take a bow. Great, and he did. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he starts to just go. He starts to go. So the fear that he had had at Corinth, he ends up being able to get rid of that fear and he just stays faithful. And he's blessed because of that. Do you know that fear poisons your present? That's what fear does. So if you're afraid like of what your son or your daughter may do, can you enjoy them in the moment? No, because you're so afraid of what may happen. They may do drugs. They may get the wrong friend. They, they, may, they may make some poor decisions. So your fear ruins the fact that right now they're doing pretty good. Enjoy them right now. Love them right now, right? That's what fear does. This is why Jesus says this. It's Matthew chapter six, verse 34. He says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough trouble for itself. I think that's one of the most brilliant statements ever. Don't get all worried about tomorrow because you're ruining today. You know I mean? it'll, it'll take care of itself. There'll be, there'll be things to worry about tomorrow. Don't worry at all about it. Instead, look around your life and be thankful for what you have right now. Be thankful for your health. Be thankful that your kids are with you. Be, just, just start listening and then you'll be in, able to enjoy the present. So it's one of the reasons I think that God, the most repeated command in the Bible is don't be afraid. You're ruining right now. Enjoy it right now. Pray the prayer I told you to pray. Give me this day my daily bread. Give me the strength. Give me the thanksgiving. Give me the gratitude. Give me the home runs today that I need. And then tomorrow I'll pray for the same thing. But I'm just gonna say today and that is it. So this ends his second missionary journey, it's been two to three years, no one's exactly sure. He gains a couple of really important key leaders, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla, 
her name appears first most often because it sounds like she's kind of like the dynamite. And Aquila, the husband, just supports her. Hey, you're awesome, you go. So that, that's uh, the, these two people. Um, I love that Paul fails hugely at Athens, walks from Athens down to Corinth and keeps going. He stays his course. And he will say at the end of his life, I finished my course with joy. Don't give up just because you fail. Failure can be, as I used to say this to my kids, failure is fertilizer for the future. You look at the greats, there's a book called Cradles of Eminence. And it's literally 300 Einstein, Clara Barton, you name it, biggest names in history. And they just go through what happened to them in their early days, the first 20 years of their life. Brutal, total failure, bad things, all this stuff. But the key ingredient to all of them was they kept running. They got up and kept running. Paul stays his course. And then we get this little thing that ends this chapter. And it really ties in with chapter 19. We, we kind of looked at that on Sunday. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Apollos, you get this little snapshot of him. He's from Alexandria. If you know your history, there was Rome, the number two city in all the Roman empire, Alexandria. It was an intellectual center, had the largest known library, the library of Alexandria, massive. It would be like today, the library of Congress which is the largest library in the world and continues to grow. Did you know that the Library of Congress grabs every single tweet on Twitter and files them and categorizes them and puts them and saves them? Did you know that? Is that crazy? So if you have ever sent out a tweet on Twitter, you can now say, my writings are in the Library of Congress. <laughs> you can put it on your resume. Yep. Woohoo! <laughs> Is that crazy or what? Yeah. Trump's gonna have his own server because he's got so many of them. Like, it's gonna break that server. So it's kind of like that, just this massive, very intellectual center. He comes from there. He's eloquent, right? He knows John the Baptist, but he's not John the Baptist. He's got a haircut. He's taking a bath. He wears nice clothing. He's got a doctorate of divinity. He's eloquent. He's the dude. He's the best preacher. Whoever you think is the best preacher in the world, that would be Apollos. He's that guy. But even though he's all cleaned up, even though he's a best-selling motivational speaker, he only has half the truth. He just knows John the Baptist. He knows repentance. He doesn't know fire and the Holy Spirit, what Jesus baptizes his believers with. He only knows half the truth. 
When I read about Apollos, I kind of think of myself. Not that I'm eloquent or anything like that. I'm John the Baptist preaching, but I go back and I will look at messages that I preached 12 years ago. And I'm like, oh man, it's not heresy. It was never heresy. <laughs> but it just is kind of like, oh, that's kind of like halfway there. That's okay. Oh. And I'm so glad that I was able to engage with some people, some Priscilla's, some Aquila's that helped me. I'm so glad that I was able to go to seminary and meet this guy named Gary Brashears, who probably has influenced more people that I know in a positive way than anyone. Old guy. This is old, like you look at a picture of him, you're like, that guy could teach nothing. And then you start talking with you like, this guy is brilliant. Here's what really fascinated me about school. I would go up, take my classes for two weeks, come back down here. And there was two times that this happened to me where I went to school and there was something shared theologically that I was just like, that's mind blowing. That is mind blowing. That changes the whole way I see Christianity. Oh my goodness, that's huge. I've been saved again almost. And I came back on a Wednesday night and I talked to a widow. And we're just talking, I'm not talking anything about this. And she started sharing with me the exact same thing that a seminary professor had shared with me that blew my mind. I just marveled at that. You know what? Here's what God told me. Why should you marvel? They both have the same teacher. It's my spirit. And with that, it's so awesome that some people learn through books, but you know what? Some people learn through life and they learn it so well that they're brilliant. They're Priscilla's, they're Aquila's, that just because of life, they've just come to this place where you're like, you're unbelievable. Keep learning. Keep learning. What I love about Apollos, he's got all the tools, but this is the best thing. He's teachable. By a couple of tent makers, Right? An eloquent, dynamic preacher like Apollos, he would have probably the inclination to be like, you so up tense and you're gonna tell me about theology? Really? I came from Alexandria. Man, I studied at the best library in the world. Are you kidding? But he didn't. He was teachable. I say, I have this saying, always a student, never a master. I'll, I'm never, this thing, I'll never master this. I'll never plummet steps. There's a widow that will be able to teach me if I'm willing to listen. So I'll ask a couple questions. Number one, do you have an Aquila and a Priscilla in your life? Someone who's maybe tracked a little bit further and they're now pouring into you. I hope you do. And on the other side, do you have an Apollos? Someone that now you're able to, because you've tracked a little bit further, pour into them. We should all have that. In 2 Timothy 2.2, it says this. Timothy, take what I've taught you and teach godly men who will then take what you've taught them and teach other godly men. Like it's called spiritual reproduction that we have been invested in greatly by Jesus, by his spirit, by the community, the, the, the crowd of the church so that then we can continue to pour out into the next person. It's always supposed to be a flow of information coming into me from those that are smarter and wiser, widows that have lived it, and then I continue to pour out to other people. That's when life is brilliant and beautiful. I'm sure you've heard the analogy 
Uh, there's two lakes in Israel. There's one lake called the Sea of Galilee. I've swam in it. It's awesome. Fish everywhere, beautiful, fun. The Jordan River flows into it and flows out of it. There's input and output. But the same Jordan River, same flow goes down to another lake called the Dead Sea. There's no outlet. I've swam in that one. Don't let that water get into your eyes. It will sting forever. It's totally, completely dead. Bacteria can't even live in it. It's that bad because there's no outflow. The Christian is supposed to be like the Sea of Galilee. There's input. I'm allowing people to input. I'm learning. I'm always learning so that I can share and teach and it's life. If we just take in, take in, take in, take in and have no output ministry-wise, I'm telling you, it makes you a salty old dog. It's not healthy, right? Then lastly, Paul in Athens, I would think that's his city. He's an intellectual giant, right? His, his mentor, Gamaliel said, I have one fault against Paul. I can't find enough reading material for him, right? I mean, he's an intellectual giant. You would think that's his city, but he fails there. And he goes to Corinth. He's afraid because he's out of his comfort zone. He's in this immoral, very, very perverted society. He's afraid he's gonna get beat up again. And we have more information on the church at Corinth than any other biblical church. It's the most we have. The place where he was afraid, coming off a giant failure, feeling this is the place I'm least qualified and he's the most successful. I think sometimes the best ministry we can do is when we think we're the least qualified for it. Because here's your tendency in that time. Guess what you do? Oh, God, help me. If you don't show up, I'm doomed. Oh, my goodness. In areas where I feel like I'm qualified, I don't need to pray. I got this one, God. You can take the day off. And that's where you'll fail. I think a great thing in ministry is every once in a while I'll just say, I wanna step out in a way that makes me so uncomfortable that if God, you don't show up, I'm doomed. And watch and see what happens. You might end up with a Corinth where you're there for years and there's this great, incredible work that happens, like Paul. So Jesus, we are amazed at this man. But we also know this. The same spirit that empowered, destabilized communities through the Apostle Paul, that same spirit, resides in all who believe in you. May we be a church of people that are like the Sea of Galilee, receiving in teachings and instruction, being teachable, and also giving out teaching and instructing. May we be a group of people that are willing to step out in ways that are uncomfortable knowing that that could be the spot that you show up in such power, that you give us visions and speak to us in ways we'd have never heard if we hadn't stepped out. We pray as we come to the table tonight and as we receive your broken body, your spent blood, 
we pray that whatever fear we might have tonight, that they would bow to you, our King. If we're afraid of losing a relationship, a job, status, privilege, comfort, ease, whatever it is, I pray that the good news that you have rescued us from sin and from death, that you've written our names in your book of life, that you're gonna return for us and where you are, there we will be also, that you've prepared a place for us, that sin and death and disease will be rolled up and thrown into the lake of fire, that that good news would be such good news that everything else pales and disappears in the bright light of your glory and your goodness. So as we eat and drink, Lord, would you give us the right perspective? You're the king. We're your kids. And that's good news. We pray this in your name. Amen.